evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about bonds. One of the reasons why I wanted to have this podcast is because um, people have been asking questions about established relationships for the challenge in April. So I thought we would put out a podcast for it for those of people who might be interested in participating, who... Um, and then we'll probably do some little brainstorming for ideas about how relationships could work just to get it out, you know, so that you can be thinking about it. If the idea of writing an established pair um, or relationship um, is daunting or you don't know what to do with it. So, um, and also I, w- I would like to say that I think I might have been a little rigid in the past about answering questions regarding this. Um, I did not mean to be. I just. I think I had an idea of what it should be and I projected that on others when answering questions and that was not cool. So, um, it's just, you know, sometimes you get an idea about something and then you don't, you just stop, you kind of get blinders and I'm not immune to that. So, you know, just if you have questions, yeah, yeah. Oddly, I'm human. It happens. (laughs) Shut up. Stop disillusioning me. Leave my illusions intact, Kira. (laughs) Okay. So, um, if you have any questions, please put them in the Ask a Question for the podcast channel so that they won't get lost. Um, But, I mean, I think the standard um, established relationships that... uh, that I was looking at when I first designed the challenge, of course, are people who are already lovers, people who are already married, um, people who, um, I mean, honestly, you could write a, a, a case fic with a sentinel and guide who are already bonded, who are on the, I mean, like it first comes to mind, if I wanted to write in Criminal Minds with an established pairing, I would totally recast Aaron Hotchner write him as a sentinel and write Spencer as his guide and have them do a case together as sentinel and guide. And of course, yeah, I'm just saying I would, we'd all be here for that, but I'm going to do a John and Rodney story, but I'm just saying if that was, you know, if I was thinking about criminal minds, that that would be where I would go with it. I would go with them already being a sentinel and guide pair. Um, um, and that just puts all that on the table and they they already have their bond. They're already doing their thing. They're out there cr- fighting crime. And Aaron Hotchner is, is played by Richard Armitage. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and you know, I also considered writing a sequel to, um, some of the stories I've already written, including that one that Jillian and I did as a one sentence prompt where um, John accepts being a sentinel in the gate room. Yeah. I considered that too. Yeah. I considered that as well. We could have been extending that's a good foundation for, for, for a sequel. Um, but so there are a variety of ways that that could be accomplished, but I think it's important that we kind of explore other types of, um, Established relationships. So, Jilly's thoughts? Um, well, because we kind of had been a little bit like we didn't think that, I mean, I don't know if you feel differently now, but that like, like a, like buddy cops wouldn't necessarily work. But I was, I was considering that. I was thinking that, you know, um, if people are just like really like super close, like 
there, you know, somebody you, you see this, I find it to be an interesting trope in romances actually, is people who have been like lifelong friends who like suddenly realize that they're um, perfect for each other. Um, and I've seen occasionally like Sentinel Guide stories that kind of go along the same, same direction. And I've even kind of alluded to it in stories, but never focused on it as part of the main pairing. It's just friends who were just so close. And it turns out the reason why they were so close is because they're both latent and they're both Sentinel Guide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be a really interesting dynamic to explore is two people who like practically live in each other's pockets. And sometimes I think realistically, some people don't take like a relationship towards sex because they don't want to risk ruining their friendship. Right. Right. That, that is a thing that happens. It sounds cliche, but it is a thing that happens is because sex can mess up your relationship. So what if, you know, that was like, that was the only thing missing from a couple's relationship is they hadn't gone there or, or the couple was ace. Right. And then they both come online and that could be a really interesting story to explore is them coming online together. Um, and I think that one of the nice things about the whole Sentinel Guide fusion trope, it's just like a soulmate trope, is it is a shortcut. It is a bridge in all that relationship dynamics and the messy details of sorting out, you know, going from friends to lovers. Because that's not always an easiest transition. Um, so I think that could be a really interesting dynamic to explore. I think there's some people who were considering exploring something similar to that. Um, I don't know if they actually... Uh, plan to go forward with that idea if they signed up um so that's one thing um well someone asked in the chat the the pat about an established bond yeah i mean i'm going to write a fic in april where john and rodney are already a couple and john comes along line as a sentinel and rodney's already a guide who has told john he doesn't want a sentinel because he wants john but John doesn't know that. John thinks he just doesn't want a sentinel. But Rodney, like the moment he saw Don in in Antarctica, he was like, "Oh, well, that's mine. <laughs> that's mine." And he he wants to put a ring on it. So he he told John. He goes, "John was like, I'm I'm Leighton. You, you don't want to get this. Isn't what you want." And he was like, yeah, "This is totally what I want." And so so Rodney. Being who he is, being very, you know, prone to Max, just told John flat out that he didn't need a sentinel, that he didn't want a sentinel, that he wanted him. And then John comes online during the storm. As you do. As you do. And John's like, well, you know, Rodney doesn't want a sentinel. What am I going to do? Oh, God. Because <laughs> he wants to put a ring on it, too. So, you know, it's not going to be a long, drawn out thing like that, because I don't believe in having a long 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 misunderstanding but there's gonna be a little moment where john's like well fuck me this you know she's gonna mess up all my stuff <laughs> it's gonna mess up my everything this is gonna work and then roddy's gonna be like that what do you mean it's, it's, this works perfectly you asshole why didn't you tell me sooner <laughs> i should win the first call the first john do you hear me i should win the first call um, so yeah, it's like a little thing. It's it, it, it's not a big thing, but so they already have the the romantic part down, and now they're going to have to figure out how to be sentinel and guide. Um. So, but um, there won't be a huge misunderstanding. Um. Because I don't I don't like to write that. Like this never ending misunderstanding is like this just causes pain and hurt to to, to the to my couple. And I don't like writing angst. No, but you know. Um, I do like to write uh, stories that feature um, 
strong um, concepts regarding body autonomy and consent. And for John, that becomes the issue because he is a sentinel. He came online during a near and went into a near feral drive in the defense of his territory and his, his lover. And so he doesn't want to be in a situation where he where Rodney feels guilty and bonds with him out of that, you know? So does that make sense? Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I had, I, one of the ideas I plotted was kind of a similar sort of thing, although not exactly because you, you have them in a little bit more of a real, more, um, the relationship is there, but the bond isn't kind of thing. Um, you could, well, okay, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. You could do a story where, um, like, the couple has a working relationship, and for whatever reason, they don't want to actually bond. Maybe they're already Sentinel and Guide, and they've already been working together as Sentinel and Guide, but they just don't. Both of them, you could write them being, I don't know, commitment-verse, but they've got the bond, right? So they've, they've bonded for whatever reason, but they haven't gone the rest of the way. And, um, that they get their shit together. That could be one angle. Um, a little bit hard to work through the motivations, but you could. I did plot one of one of the stories I plotted was um, in his first established relationship, but it was it wasn't viable because it wouldn't have been long enough. Um, but but I might do it for July because July just requires that they form a bond, but they could already be in a relationship, right? So, mm-hmm. and that was that Rampart was. And Tony were mm-hmm. sort of fuck buddies. And Rampart was an online sentinel, but Tony wasn't Yay. online. And t- Tony thought they were just fuck buddies, but Rampart was really attached, like really attached. So when Tony comes online, um, it's unsurprising that um, um, Rampart be like, that's my guy right over there. <laughs> that, that, that's that, mine. That's the one. I've been, that's I've mine. been, I have had a reserve on that ass for like, you know, three years now so move <laughs> um but i couldn't get that i no matter what i did because i did put some intrigue in it like that they were actually being kept apart um but i uh well no Sina, you don't the thing about the established relationship is that it's actually really open they can either have a bond or not they can either like have the bond but not the romance or they can have the romance and not the bond um you're fine, Senna. They can be bonded. I'm doing one where they're already bonded. Or, you know, you could have an established couple who's, like, fucking living in the house and considering a surrogate baby. <laughs> doing their thing, going to work. You could write Jim and Blair living their best life, have them have a couple of kids. I mean, whatever. That would count as an established relationship across the board. If you wanted to go old school and do Jim and Blair. Um... But one thing that I had been kind of rigid about that I have come to see that was I'm a romance writer. So I approach this challenge from a romance perspective and that's not fair because not everybody is a romance writer on on RT and that's it was rude. And also I think that some of my answers to questions were borderline exclusionary and that was not my intention. I just had this myopic focus on what I thought an established relationship would be. And um, that was my bad. So I'm trying to, you know. So are you thinking about like allowing, so are you thinking, (laughs) so are you thinking like that, like, are you thinking then that like, um, like John and Sherlock's work partnership would account as an established relationship? 
I think that when it comes to John and Sherlock, that they've been an established relationship since they met. Well, yeah. I'm not so sure I that's a good example. <laughs> well, no, but, I think, but most of the examples people put out there were like Harry and Eggsy, John and Sherlock, it was those kinds of like mentor mentee or just, I don't know, some sort of weird, obviously soulmate but okay it's platonic if you say so kind of situation um but there are plenty of relationships that are entirely platonic that i would consider i mean like you know if, if you get if, if you put two asexuals together who were also happen to be romantic very romantic individuals and they fall in love and have this beautiful romance that's an established relationship yeah i totally agree it's, i just don't really see um when it comes to Sherlock, that's the one I was specifically referring to. It's like, okay, it's platonic if you say so. Does anybody <laughs> actually believe that relationship is no. platonic? No. I mean, we all watch that with flash goggles on. I mean, not all. <laughs> Sorry, I can't put words in everybody else's mouth, but specifically um, John and Sherlock. So, Look, Hannibal and Will are soulmates. <laughs> Absolutely. They've been together. I'm, I'm going to write them for the soulmate challenge, and they've been together since the dawn of time. Over and over and over again. Um, two hearts, one met and become one. So I think one of the challenges for me approaching the soulmate, this challenge was actually the length, right? Part of me, when I really got to working on the plotting, I was like, I really wish we had inverted July and April. Cause I could like, I could think of, so I could do a 10 K sequel to like half of my Sentinel stories in a heartbeat, it, but 30 K on many of them. It's like, no, no. No, I can't get to third. And then I come up with an idea. I go, 15K. And then I'd be sitting there thinking, no. And I go to the next one. I go, 10K. I go to the next one. I go, 15K. <laughs> it's just, it was just, it became this litany of no. Because it's that, for me with a sequel, you could do established relationship where you're not doing a sequel. But the sequel aspect meant that I already had a lot of the story, the world building and stuff, and the relationship dynamics that had already been set up in the first story, right? So I don't need to duplicate a lot of that. Yes, the story should stand on its own, but you also don't want to be repetitive. So I'm just sitting there drumming my fingers going, well, for the sequels, I just, I'm going to have to actually have plot that has nothing to do with their relationship. And I'm at, that's actually literally what I said to myself. I was sitting there going, I'm going to have to have a plot that has nothing to do with the relationship. Well, fuck me. So, um, <laughs> cause it, it does it, an obvious, an obvious path for this challenge in April was to do for an established relationship was to do a sequel to something you'd already written. You know, you get them together in one story and it also can give a lot of reader satisfaction because the reader sees them get together in one story and then you write the sequel and, you know, and for many of us, it would get a, uh, a sequel off of our plate, but it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. So, um, and then a lot of the stories I came up with were then way too big. It was like, I don't want to plot something that's a hundred K for April. April needs to be a break for me. It needs to not be a, um, it needs to be a not be a giant endeavor. I don't want to plot something that I think is going to be 120k for April. Um, so it became a lot harder to come up with an idea for April than any other, which I wouldn't have expected that. I was I went in thinking April is going to be the easy one, you know, and I I wound up I wound up being so wrong. But I do like what I eventually came up with. I just um, it was it was way down on the, the list. I went through many, many plot ideas that didn't work because of, because of length. I couldn't get, couldn't get them to 30 K. 
what I would say about um, writing a sequel um, to a work, I've written a lot of them, um, is that for me, my biggest issue in writing a sequel is um, continuity. Um, to make sure that anything that I had um, established in the first book or the second book or the third book or like the eighth book when it comes to ties that bind um that i'm keeping the same threads going that i'm exploring um themes and i'm not introducing um giant uh obstacles that interfere with events that happened in the past um that would make that would cause suspension of disbelief issues um but Writing a sequel that stands on its own, but also but also one that doesn't interfere with what you've already written, can be kind of daunting if you've never done it before. And it's not something if you've never done a sequel to a work, I wouldn't recommend doing it on Rough Trade to start. <laughs> that, uh, that you don't want challenge yourself. Yes, give yourself a task that horrifies you it's you ask you to do it in public no no <laughs> no no baby no yeah i mean sequels can be because you already have an established audience for it they have expectations yeah well i mean expectations the most <laughs> the most obvious candidate for april for me was the sequel to vicious but and it would have and it's plotted i think 40k but so it would have worked except i've already written like a quarter of it maybe more so that wasn't really actually and i mean their relationship and now that's an example of where i think it kind of edges the established relationship they're not actually bonded they haven't had sex but they've acknowledged each other as sentinel and guys started like literally sleeping in the same bed so i felt like that counted as established relationship except i started the sequel already and i really like what i've written on the sequel so i wasn't prepared to toss it out but you can write an established relationship without without writing a sequel yeah Absolutely. I just, it just, it was the easy, it's the easy path, I think, for a lot of people rather than, um, because if you write an established relationship where it's not a sequel, you do need to lay down kind of eventually work in how they got together. Um, and some people, that may not be a strength for some people is how to weave in details about an established relationship if they've never written it before. Like how the couple got together and, you know, what the, and, and fill the reader in on what their relationship is like without making it just a, an info dump. Um, but, you know, the thing is, for me, it was just a matter of putting some time into thinking, what do I want to accomplish with this story? And do I care if it's more plot-focused than relationship-focused? And at the end of the day, I went, no. And I thought something I think is really fun. So um, it'll probably go a little longer, you know. But I do have to watch the level of political intrigue I bring into the story because the more intrigue I put in, the longer it's going to get. And I really don't want to, I really don't want to do that to myself. Rough trade is a high octane challenge environment. No matter what we're doing with, um, as far as themes go, um, as far as uh, fandoms, um, whatever it it is that there's a reason why when i started it it became naked nano um, um it was naked nano because the only thing i can think of a, a little more 
anxiety inducing than putting my rough draft out for people to read would be me be standing in public naked. They're about equal. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's why it was called Naked Nano to begin with. I do think that an established relationship in fandom is a little easier because your reader already knows the characters. Um, they're already invested in the characters. They're already invested in the pairing. Um, I mean, somebody asked in the chat room, they read my project file, isn't that the plot we had a podcast about right before Christmas? I know I had mentioned that one of my potential sequels was for everything they said. And I talked about how we would work it out, but um, it kind of fizzled because it lacked focus. And I actually did a plotting session with Kira about um, how to focus that. So um, there were a lot of new elements that came in about what I was thinking about with that. Because I had, I had a lot of details and a lot of world building, but it just wasn't focused anywhere yet. So that, that helped to get that to make it a viable idea is like just, I needed to figure out how it was going to be focused, but I am doing a sequel to everything they said. Uh, yeah. Everything they said. I've, I have, a, I have, I have an original thing called everything you want and a fan fiction called everything they said. And then, <laughs> and then I have another fan fiction story called everybody knows. So it gets to be eventually, it's like, it's a little brain tilty. Um, so I'm doing Steve Tony um, sequels to everything they said, which where that had left off was right after they bonded, which was that was the thank you, Lady Holder. Um, that was the story where Steve would set early the first season, early in the first season of Hawaii Five O. Steve newly back on the island, and um, Tony's a guide trainer working for um, the Sentinel Guide Foundation, and he uh, he and the guides, his baby guides, are abducted. Not literally babies. That would be weird. Um, but, um, I will, will mention that I am doing an edit on the original story. It's a very minor edit to take out Sentinel Guide Center and replace it with Sentinel Guide Foundation because I had, hadn't conceived when I wrote the story originally of crossing it over with Stargate. Man, that's the thing right there. SGC, I, SGC. I can't, I can't have an SGC that's Sentinel Guide and an SGC that's the Stargate command. So I'm changing to Sentinel Guide Foundation. So that edit will go up sometime this week for anybody who rereads it, but I'll make a note of that when the, when we when rough trade starts that, you know, Sentinel Guide Center was replaced in that original story. Cause that set, that story used to be on AO3 and that story used to be um, up on, there was an ebook of that up on my site for a while. So I'm sure some people have that downloaded. And so what they will never read the version that has the change with Sentinel Guide Foundation. I'm also taking the opportunity while I'm editing it and changing it and I'm going to repost it to take out one of my Alex's and give him a different name because <laughs> I don't need all these Alex's. I get one Alex. I don't need five. I have five OCs named Alex. Different Alex's. That's the thing. If it was all the same Alex, it'd be fine. No, Alex Joyce has to stay Alex Joyce. He stay, he's in one too many. There's a whole different Alex in everything they said. A whole different one. <laughs> so Alex Shepard will remain. Alex Shepard will remain and Alex Joyce will remain. But the other three Alex's have to go. Mm. It is Sorry, Alex's. You you lost the lottery. <laughs> or won it. I don't know. <laughs> You gotta be careful with that placement name. Like you, like okay, I'll just I'll name this taxi driver later. You're John, and the bartender's John, and the doctor. At, it's just it's ridiculous. 
<laughs> you just gotta be right. careful. Well, I had one story where in um in Imperfect, that scene in the convenience store where Tony's describing to Derek the scene that happened with a convenience store robbery. Um, initially, the the two police officers that I renamed Francis and Francis, because um, I wanted them to have similar names. Their names were Alex and Alexis. And my beta reader said, really? You're going to have a yet another Alex? <laughs> and, the, and you're going to give us two more? And I was like, holy shit. Um <laughs> No, no, I take it out. So I changed it to Francis and Francis. And one of them is called Frankie. Uh, but I just, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, so, so yeah, so me and my Alexes. I am taking, I am going to rename an Alex while I'm there because I can. I'm like, if I'm editing and reposting something, I might as well fix that. Do, do your thing. But yeah, I thought about, well, you know, if you've already got the thing I usually, when I do write romance, the thing I'm usually f- focusing on is the building, bringing them together. And, and there's the climax is usually a culmination about something about the romance, right? Something about their relationship is where the climax of the story is usually focused. Usually not always. Cause sometimes the, sometimes the my romances are actually a subplot, but that's, that's atypical. But when I think I thought about it, it's like, well, half my works are not romances. So clearly I can write plot driven stories. Quit, quit, overthinking this Jillian and get to work. (laughs) (laughs) I think that when I came into designing the challenges for this, for this year that I um, allowed my fan and interpretation of Sentinel and guides are known to kind of um, form my views on how these challenges should be approached and um, it's how I answered questions because inherently in the Sentinel and guide are known trope. It's very romantic. And nine times out of 10, when you're reading a Sentinel and guide story, the guides are known, the Sentinels are known. um, It's going to end up a very deeply romantic sexual relationship. I mean, that's just nine times out of 10. That's that's, that's what you're going to find across the board, across many fandoms. Um, and so it was like, and I, you know, that fanon influences us all. Yeah, well, especially if that's the kind of thing you read, and it is the, it is the, I would say the, by far and away, most Sentinel and Guides are known stories have romantic pairing in them. The Sentinel and Guide are involved with one another, and so it's not usual that people who read that and really enjoy it seek out. Oh, I need to find more stories where the Sentinel and Guide are not romantically attached to each other. I'm sure there are people who really like that particular spin on it, but certainly if you pursue the romantic angle, you're probably not seeking out. So it it definitely is. We can get blinders on when we think about um, an interpretation of a trope. But I do see the Sentinel and Guy Bond as a very, very deeply romantic thing. Yeah. But, you um, know, I was just, I was just sitting here thinking that writing a story where, um, again, I couldn't stretch this to 30K, but it, let's say this would be probably more like a 15, 20K story where you have like two just people who are just close as peas in a pod, right? Super close. And just one day, just kind of, and maybe they work together or maybe they're partners in a business or I don't know, something where they have like, they're just really, they just really gel really mesh really well together. Um, So um, what if, what if one night they're just 
just super in sync with one another and they're talking and they're close and just like they lean over and kiss their very first kiss and it's like gentle and chaste and they both just kind of gently come online right at that moment together just at that first contact that first that first contact that is bringing a sense that they never had between them before which is taste and that in that moment right there that they come online together i think it would be really sweet um it is very sweet. I really like the um, the the um, onlining for Stackhouse and Markham in Sentinels of Atlantis. I think it's honestly the way it should happen. You know, I mean, I often write things where Sentinels come online in very dramatic situations, but um, Stackhouse, you know, he was just with his man. They were just, you know, that they have been lovers forever, like since practically since the day they met. They were just drawn to each other and it's a very magnetic connection between them. And um, he comes online in his guide's arms. That's just fucking precious, as right as right and red just said in the chat room. It's precious. <laughs> it's adorable. Yeah. But it's like I don't think it's the norm. I think it should be. But I don't think it is in a world where where sentinels and guides exist. And sentinels often um come online in circumstances that are not ideal. Um, I had, I had in demons, I had a pretty gentle onlining for Tony and they bonded at the same moment that Tony came online. Cause they were so close by that time. Um, but it had nothing to do actually with the sex. It was more, it happened, did happen while they were have, right at the end of them having sex, but it didn't actually have anything to do with the sex. It had to do with the fact that that was the moment that Tony wanted it. That was the moment that he expressed that he wanted to be a guide. And, and the way I did the world building in that one, that was really the only thing holding Tony back, was that he had never wanted it before. And I was a little bit, there was one thing I was hesitant about with that, in that the bond happened, like, without them con discussing it. Like, Tony came online, and then they were instantly bonded. Um, but I felt like that the discussion they had ahead of it, and Tony verbally stating that he wanted to be everything to Dom, kind of dealt with the... Because accidental bonding is a little squicky for me at times if it's not handled very carefully. So, um, oh yeah. I was just really careful about how I handled that with him coming online and bonding in the same moment. So what I would say is that um, if you're thinking about exploring um, a situation um, where your characters don't have a sexual relationship and never will have a sexual relationship, that's perfectly okay. Um, it's just not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> like, it's not in my wheelhouse, but you do you. And also, what I also like to say is that I have never, ever in the history of Rough Trade policed people's entries. No one has ever been kicked off of Rough Trade for getting a challenge wrong. Because if that was going to happen, y'all, it would have happened during the single POV challenge. <laughs> y'all I love all y'all I I love ya <laughs> but 25 podcasts later some of you still didn't get it <laughs> it's okay though it's okay because that's about you know it's about learning and growing and changing and um, inspire inspiring each other and um, and challenging each other so I certainly need more than one POV shadow
writing Darkly Lowell taxed me to the extreme, but I also think it taught me some really interesting lessons about POV and my, well, Lady Helder, I think that uh, single POV um, is your, is your safe place. <laughs> but my story construction, my normal story construction isn't built around a single POV. And I learned that um, I really prefer two or three. I, I actually think I do gravitate towards single POV, but it's because I was a first person point of view writer for mm -hmm. a long, long time. So I gravitate towards a single POV. And actually when I'm right, and I do think some of my stories, however, are better with multiple points of view. Um, so one of the things I have to be careful of, though, if I'm doing multiple points of view, is that I don't weight too heavily towards one character. Because I don't think it needs to be balanced. If you've got a central character, you're going to have more scenes in their POV. But you don't want to do, like, one chapter in somebody else's point of view. That's jarring and off. So it, I, I'm trying to get too wrapped. I can get wrapped around the axle about POV. But... Um, but anyway, yeah, so it, it's a it's a thing that with, with the POVs, I really like doing one, but there are stories that just are better with multiple points of view. Like I couldn't have told these small hours from one point of view. Or if I did, it would have been it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have had the same emotional impact, I don't think. No, no, without, without I, Gibbs. You needed to view. know where you need to know where Gibbs was and what he was thinking and feeling. Yeah. So That's that one important. So that one I really sometimes multiple points of view help you with your world building too. Yeah. So, but I mean, like I haven't so far. I haven't had any issue writing since so what I've what I've written so far. of Slytherin Black. I haven't had any issue with it being a single point of view story. So, um, but it was I. It was plotted single point of view. So, um, and I've written several stories single point of view. That's not that, but a lot of my novels I do tend to grab. I tend to try to work in more than one. Um, so I did want to mention. Um, in case I just took anybody listen to this to explain the difference between um, what I said about that Tony didn't come online until he wanted it. Um, Tony did mention, he did talk to Pepper earlier in the story. I don't remember where exactly this conversation is, but Pepper kind of challenges him. You're not a guide. And, and Tony says something along the lines of, um, but I, for him, I would be if I could kind of thing. Um, the difference between the reason why he didn't come online with that acknowledgement, but he did when he talked to Dom is because Tony was still afraid that if he, that he would lose Dom to a, Dom's guide someday. So even if, so he, that was more wishful thinking on his part, not, I actually want to be a guide because, um, he only would want to come online if he knew he was Dom's guide. So he was kind of expressing, it was the first big hurdle for him was expressing the wishfulness that he wanted to be everything to Dom, but he was still working with the, that fear that he was going to lose Dom to whoever Dom's guide was. And so what was critical about the discussion they had before he came online is he asked Dom flat out, am I, would I have, would I have been your guide if I'd been online? And Dom said, you're already my guide. It doesn't matter if you're online or not. And so I think that it was I think it's really impactful for Tony to realize that he was going to have Dom no matter what. And so the moment when he said I, he wanted to be, he wished he could be everything for Dom is that's the, was the critical moment that he, why he came online then. Cause he said it. Your, and, your headset is rattling a little bit. Let me try this. this. No. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. It was me talking with a little hand. vibration. 
know. Yeah. <laughs> so that moment was really important that he, because he wouldn't have wanted to be online. He wouldn't have wanted to be a guy because he didn't actually want to be a guide. He wanted to be everything to Dom. And that's why the moment didn't happen when he was talking to Pepper. A vibration is only a bad thing um, on the podcast. Normally I'd be cool <laughs> with it. Vibrate away. <laughs> As you will. Whenever you have time in a semi-private location. <laughs> semi-private, yeah. I had this, I had this, I had this friend in college and masturbation came up in a conversation and a lot of the w- females in the room were like oh no I never do that I never do that and I had this one friend she was like I do it every chance I get all I need is all I need is a little time in a semi-private location (laughs) semi-private it'd be a shame to waste this (laughs) semi-private room (laughs) so for a while there we would be like we knock on her door are you in a semi-private location right now (laughs) Or can we come in? <laughs> so it became a euphemism for masturbation amongst my friends. <laughs> Semi-private location. Yeah. I have, you know, y'all y'all know I talk about anything. I bought this. I'd seen like, people raving about this. Like, it's sort of a sex toy. It's clitoral stimulator or something. I don't know. I don't know what you call it. I don't, actually, I don't know what that classification of Is it that is one called. that sucks? Yes. Yes, but not the not not like the Lilo one, which is really quiet. Okay, so I ordered this one because I want to try it out, right? Because I'm game to try. I had never tried anything like that before, so I order it. And holy crap! Somebody described it as being um, hit in the face with an orgasm. Yeah, in about two <laughs> seconds, it was like, "Whoa, that's over." <laughs> I had to because it has like 13 different settings, and I had to find one that was much tamer because its default setting would it it like. In like two seconds, blows my brain out through the back of my head. It's like, oh my god, what just <laughs> happened? But anyway, the problem it's with like it from zero to orgasm in two seconds. Right. I have never experienced anything so loud in my whole life. So I was pretty sure that anytime I used it, it was a semi-private situation because I was pretty sure my neighbors could hear it. I was like, <laughs> my sex life's just getting aired. Everybody, <laughs> turn on a fan or ten. <laughs> I mean, it was loud. I was like, oh. and the thing is, I went to go read the reviews and people like, wow, this thing is loud, you know. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was loud a bit. <laughs> but Lilo has one um, that a couple of girls on um, BuzzFeed uh, reviewed and they, and they were like, oh, wow. oh, mama, that thing is good. <laughs> I bought that too. It's quiet. It's quiet. It's called the Sona Cruise. You say it, yeah, I mean, that's it's the one that goes inside too, right? Uh, I don't think so because the one on BuzzFeed it went inside and stimulated the G spot at the same time. It was it it sucks the clit. No, it, no, that's not the one I've got. No, this toy I've, sucks sucks the clit. I need to put a little note that this is going to be an explicit podcast. <laughs> it doesn't. This one and the thing is the one the one that Lilo made, like the one that they made, the, the loud one that I bought that you can get on Amazon. Um, that thing is definitely a sucking motion. Like you put it on your finger, you're going to feel the suction. The one that Lilo did something different. It's sort of like, um, it's some a sort of sonic. So it's a sonic thing, right? It's it's so it's very quiet. It's, it's, it is very good. 
and I like it better because I don't mind having a quick orgasm sometimes, but I would like to have a little bit of choice in the matter. <laughs> she wants to romance herself, y'all. I do. Sometimes I, <laughs> sometimes I don't. I want it. I don't want it to be over within two seconds. I'm not lying about the two seconds thing either. You think I'm feminine? I'm not. It was like it barely got there, and I was done. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't want to take an hour, but huh? Is that supposed to work that way? <laughs> Did you ask it if it wanted a cigarette? <laughs> no, I knew it happened. I felt like a limp noodle. It was <laughs> it was not a did it happen. It definitely happened. I, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, but somebody asked about it in Minion headquarters one day and somebody replied that it's like and I was I was gonna respond to the thread too. But somebody responded and said, Yeah, it's like being slapped in the face of the orgasm. And I was like, that's really apt. <laughs> that's like the first time I ever tried an, an Hitachi magic wand. Yeah. Y'all. Yeah. I was like, I pulled it out of the package and I'm thinking, this is okay. And so I, I plugged it in. This is the first toy I ever had that plugged in. And I was like, it doesn't it plugs in. <laughs> does, does any orgasm, does this any vibrator need that kind of power? I don't know. I don't know. And so, dude, dude. Yeah, it has three speeds. It only has two. It has two. Mine had, mine had three. They have two. Hitachi only has two. Well, has I have a little spinny thing on the cord. Oh, mine had a modulator. Oh, you bought okay. That's different. That's different. It but had a the, little, like a little spin thing. And yeah, it was like the so fast and who needs a man? Right. It has the Hitachi has the base device since its design has had two settings: orgasm and outboard motor. That's pretty much. <laughs> I mean, when I finished with it, I looked and see if it is, and to, to see if that damn thing had a kickstand because it deserved one. It really <laughs> did. It's like was that was that a was that a vibrator or a Harley? I'm really not sure which. <laughs> it was. Um, the uh, the Hitachi actually goes into that device that you ride. Somebody asked in the chat room, "Is that the thing that you ride?" Um, no. But that, but the Hitachi can go into that thing that you can ride to give extra stimulation. Is that the Simeon? How do you say that? I'm not sure which which thing you ride. It's got it's got a lot of attachments. So I'm yeah, not, that I'm... one, the Simeon. Oh, oh. Now that the the wand will go in that because the wand because I think you would need a lot of power for that particular thing to provide vibration. And a, I don't, like a little egg wouldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, now they have ones that are chargeable and battery. But I got my first, I got my only Hitachi wand about 15 years ago. I got, um, I did, I've been through several. But I do actually use it as, as a massager too. Because it is strong enough to actually, you know, use it for that too. But, um. I, my second one, I decided not to get the actual Look, Hitachi. My I relationship with my Hitachi was deep and intimate. I'll have you know. Right. <laughs> well, but I got I got a I got a, a model that was actually quite expensive. It was more it was more than the Hitachi that was uh, rechargeable. Mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't have the same kick. 
But we, we will get back on topic pretty soon. But what I would say is that you have to be very careful when you lose when you use something like the Hitachi because it can actually um, decrease your sensitivity. Your sensitivity. Yeah, um, but it, it it can take. I think it's like three to four weeks for sensitivity to come back up if you stop um, using it. It took me six months. Wow. Okay. But now I only have a Lilo because Lilo because Lilo. Bada boom. I'm not, I'm not um, sure what that was. Bada boom. Yeah, exactly. Um, because the Hitachi just um it, it actually made masturbating with my fingers impossible. I mean, I, I would have given myself carpal tunnel syndrome before I actually accomplished anything. Because of the sensitivity issue that it that it caused. Yeah, it desensitizes you. So, but you but the thing is, it's not permanent. So if you've been using one and you feel like it's taking harder and harder and harder to get an orgasm, you're just gonna have to, you know, you're gonna have to yourself. wait it out. You're and you're gonna have to wait it out for a while. It's gonna take a while for that sensitivity to come back, but it will. But you know, on the other yeah, hand, it if is, it works yeah. for if it works for you, I have a friend who it's been working for her reliably since the seventies, and she ain't changing. That's her method, right? You do you, boo. But mine broke, and I replaced it with a Lilu because I didn't want to spend all the money on it, you know. And I got a gift card, but it didn't cover um, the price of the Hitachi. And I was like, okay, I'll just get this one because it's got good reviews, and they talk about it in the Minion headquarters a lot. And I was like. I'll get this. And it's nice. It's lovely. I love my Lilu. But the first couple of months, I was like, nothing. Or a half hour. Lilo. Lilo. I need to you watch need- the fifth element to get that out of my brain. You do. You need to get yourself a multi-pass. Okay. Multi-pass. <laughs> multi-pass. But um, it's actually that that desensitivity issue is not I mean, if, if if you use it for massage in a lot of areas, sometimes you can do the same thing to your nerves in those areas. They kind of get desensitized. Depending on what's going on with you, that might not be a bad thing, right? But um, <clears throat> back to established relationships. So, like I said, when I opened up the podcast, that I was a little—I think that I was overly rigid with with the idea of what an established relationship was. And I'm not going to police you and your stories. Um, but what I would ask you is, um, as you're approaching this challenge, is if your idea um, meets the meets the spirit of the of the challenge, um, is the relationship that you're exploring established? And um, intellectually and emotionally intimate. Intellectually intimate, at least. I mean, what kind of relationship do they have? And what do you want to explore in it? Um, I think it also has to be emotionally intimate. Because just intellectually intimate. Um, you know. Well, I was thinking like. I mean, what if somebody wants to write, write like siblings as Sentinel and Guide? But that still is, has those siblings have a high can have a high level of emotional intimacy. It's just a different kind of emotional intimacy. Yeah. Now some siblings are like fucking strangers, but some right? siblings are best friends, right? And best friends have a level of emotional intimacy. It's just a very platonic intimacy. But you can have you can be somebody you've worked with that you have a lot of intellectual intimacy with. You have no emotional, no significant emotional connection with. Um, yeah, true. True. So yeah, I guess emotional and in, in in mental investment in one another, I think, is probably the key to an established relationship. 
There's an emotional support penguin. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> we will not name an Avery out of respect. Um, but writing emotional relate emotional relationship. Well, writing an established relationship presents. Regardless of what kind of, I don't it, have it, a I don't have a problem with a sibling. Pa- I I actually read a really good fic by Lady Raw where there were several. Um, sibling pairs in that fic and it did not squick me at all what I do have a problem with is incest and I'll make no apologies for that in fact one of the more interesting pairing in Lady Raw's school series uh, if someone could get a link for that what was it called Jillian it's Jillian? called the Sentinel School I think the first story in the universe is called the Gathering of Sentinels like one of the more interesting pairings was an older brother and the guy was a little girl his sister yeah um, um, and they were sent in the line guide together and it was platonic and and wonderful. And um, they, they just had a really sweet relationship. So I don't have a problem with it. It doesn't fit my head canon and I wouldn't write it, but it doesn't squick me. The incest squicks me. Yeah. Now I will say we talk about like, um, I think if you want to write, let's say if you want to write incest, if that's your jam, you know, you do you, I think it's going to be something a lot of people are going to find troubling and it is it's not it's not even really directly a bash on whatever ship you like because it's not about the ship it's about the incest um and i think that but i think that most people who ship an incest ship an incest pair they know that a lot of people aren't aren't going to get it they're not gonna they're not gonna and it's be... not against the rules on rough trade to write it i'm just not gonna read it <laughs> right but I'm also not going to lie and say that, oh, you know, your mileage may vary. Because when it comes to, you know, something that in many places is actually criminal, you know, I don't know. It It's just, it. And we've never it, had a Sam Dean story on Rough Trade. But it wouldn't be against the rules. And if anybody said anything negative, that comment would not get approved. So, you know, it's just, it's just, Yeah. I do see the Sentinel and Guy Bond as sexual. Does that mean I expect everybody to write it that way? No, of course not. Um, I don't read those stories. <laughs> but I don't expect anybody to to, confer- to conform to my headcanon. We discussed platonic, platonic bonds. Pl- platonic. Platonic bonds um, in um, the Sentinel podcast. Uh, but you know... If you want to write a platonic established relationship, I think there's, yeah, you definitely wish you could do that. Um, I've mentioned this story before. There's a um, Teen Wolf story. Uh, there's there's a handful of like Peter style stories I read, but most of them, I would say possibly all but that one are AUs, right? Because I find the pairing in a canon type setting to be very problematic. That's just, that's me. I have a hard time, just have a hard time getting behind it. But in an AU, I actually think they're very well-matched personality-wise. But there is one story that is a canon sort of situation. It's like post-college or post-college. Anyway, both Peter and Styles are ace, and they decide to get married ostensibly so their libraries can live together. Um, it's very cute. It's very charming. And if you wanted to write a story like that, you know, because if, if you took something like that kind of concept, but Styles and Peter and, you know, Peter and Styles both came online as Sentinel and Guide, you know, you could do something like that. 
<laughs> Dark says she wants her library to get married now. I think the library, I think libraries should absolutely get to get married. Um, it should be a thing. Here's somebody, a question was asked. Um, what about long-term enemies? Would that fall into an established relationship? Enemies can be emotionally invested and personally involved in each other's business. Um, that's accurate, but I think it would be a violation of the spirit of the challenge. It's just my personal opinion. Um, I wouldn't police you on it, but I think that that's not what the readers are um, going to be here for. So they might not read it. And if that's important to you, that's something to think about. I mean, I don't write stories with the idea of, oh, I don't know if people will read this, but some people do. And I'm not saying that you do. I'm not trying to put that on you. Um, but like the incest theme, uh, trying to, people have the idea of enemies becoming Sentinel and Guide. Um, it makes them uncomfortable. Like, where does that go? Where's the potential for that? What are the, what are the ripples? What am I going to see? Um, what am I not going to see? Um, I'm here for a happy ending. Am I going to get a happy ending? Am I going to get a sexy romance or am I going to get a disaster? Are they going to jump off the cliff together? Or is one of them going to push the other? <laughs> you know? So it's, it's about, you know, what you want to write um, and uh, what kind of um, experience you want to have with the story. And if that makes you happy, then, you know, you do you. I just don't think it meets the, um, I don't think it meets the, oh my God. <laughs> I don't think it meets the spirit of the challenge, but that's just my personal opinion. On the other hand, I mean, it could be, Sometimes people were in a relationship and then they kind of become enemies because of a misunderstanding. And um, then they, the, then you might get that. Um, then you might get them back together in your story, but just pure enemies. Like I think, I think it'd be a tough sell, but like Kira said, you got to figure out what kind of experience you want to have. I read a story once a long time ago and I do not read Smallville's as a rule. And I don't know why I read the story, but I did. If I remembered who told me about it, I'd blame them. Okay. But I don't. So I so I won't cast blame. Um, but it's a story about... It was Lex and Clark. And Lex accidentally gets a superhero ability. And he's really salty about it. But he goes out and does his superhero thing. Because he's like required... He's like... He thinks he's required to. I hero. Yes, Willow. Saves the day. I hero. And... Um, so, uh, and Clark, you know, Superman's on board with, with the whole thing. And, and, um, but a lot of those superheroes aren't, I think. Um, and of course it's a, it's a collect story. So, the, so they get together and, um, but he's just real salty about being a hero. He doesn't want to be one. And, but they, but they get together. I'm not, I'm not sure who wrote it, but it's called I Hero. As you do. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the, the story... It's called I Hero by IIBNF. <laughs> okay, then. Um, and then the other story was called um, the Peter Stiles Library thing. It's the Domestic Bliss series by Moonstalker24. But so we talked about different ways to approach um, the, the established relationship thing. Um, so then it comes to, if you, but let's say you're going to go the more traditional route, right? That they're in an established relationship. They're already in a relationship right conceivably 
I would say probably the most expected, most traditional approach to that is in a romantic relationship of some sort, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. As opposed to something else. So they're in a romantic relationship. Um, you could either go the route that they're not sentinel guide yet, or you could go the route that they already are sentinel guide and bonded. And that's a big decision to make because if they're already sentinel guide and bonded, um, you really need to have a lot of plot because you don't have any relationship to work out. You don't have any sentinel guide things to deal with because that's all done. And actually, that's kind of my jam. I like that whole Us Against the Universe storyline. Uh-huh. So I kind of really dig that. Um, so it's a lot of fun, the idea of, of playing with that. Um, you know, just the idea of, like, Aaron and, and Spencer, you know, having their house and, and doing the thing with the job. And, you know, it's just that that's my jam. I, I really enjoy the idea of that. Um, it's just. Now I like you know get together too, but uh, I ought to get them together as quickly as possible. <laughs> well, there's a there's a really good reason why a lot of bonding fix are short, right? Is because right. <laughs> on the shorter scale, like under twenty five k, is because you're just trying to get your characters together, and that could have a lot of plot. Like for, um, I mean, the scope of getting Tony and like Tony and Dom together in the demons verse, actually they got together pretty quickly, relatively speaking, but the path to getting them bonded as Sentinel guide was long. Um, so it's kind of a, what do you, um, what, what kind of story do you want to tell? And that could inform your choices, right? Um, because I really did, I, I did decide to go with a sequel, but beca- and because I went with a sequel to a Sentinel guide story, I then had the issue of, well, then what, right? They're already together, which is where I, what I usually do when I write Sentinel Guides. I'm writing, getting them together. So what now? And that's why I had to come up with a, an entire plot that has absolutely nothing to do with romance. But it'll be fun. You're going to have a whole lot of fun with it. I'm going to be fun. And there could be still sexy times. <laughs> well, of course, because why not? But, um... I think, you know, really, you need to define for yourself um, what it is and and what you're going to do and how you're going to handle um, the Sentinel and Guide aspect, uh, how you're going to deal with Fanon, if you're going to ignore Fanon, which is an entirely viable option. Um, If you're going to write just, you know, straight Sentinel, um, I don't mean that like straight. I mean, like, just pure Sentinel. <laughs> right. So, that was really loud. <laughs> there was, like, a little glitch at the same time you spoke. <clears throat> really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, um, but I, uh, <laughs> I got distracted by the chat room. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's important to write what is comfortable for you, but to also acknowledge that if you're going to write a pairing that stays platonic, um, or if you're writing characters that are ace, that you need to understand the implications of an empathic bond and what you could be potentially doing to your um, characters and and what that would mean. Um, And to mind your ripples. Because if you're going to write a story with a platonic pairing, 
um, where they have outside partners and they also have an empathic bond, I'm going to ask you on Rough Trade to to warn for dubious consent. At the very least. Because honestly, I think it in some situations it could skirt straight into non-con. I mean, it all depends upon how you show the couple negotiating that kind of thing. The problem is, is that most people just gloss over it like it's not a problem. Those kinds of details, right? Like intruding on somebody's but even, emotional. Yeah, but even like a conversation before doesn't equal continuous consent. Right. So well, it's, but if they, it, it's, it's icky. It's, it's just... If they're in a poly relationship, that's different because that, that implies that they've negotiated their relationship, right? So, um, But still, you don't want to have an empathic character projecting on a person who's not even in the room. They don't even know what they're doing. I mean, they could be on the other side of the city performing surgery for, I mean, you know, whatever your character or, is doing. <laughs> but you could, you could tailor the whole empathic connection thing. It's not one size fits all either. It could be right, but that they're capable of shutting the empathic be, connection down. Yeah, you need to be, to be tailored about it. Right. You can't just have it be wide open all the time. So, and I've seen I mean, where it is. Right. And they don't is, make, yeah. they don't have any kind of, oh, <laughs> it's like, dude, no, stop. What are you doing? And it's too often I see that. Or I see situations where guides um, manipulate their sentinel with with their empathic ability. And that's gross. Like that thing you found that one time in the BDSM verse where somebody could touch somebody on the neck and they would just fall into subspace. I'd only seen it once. I would have never even been able to mention it. But I saw it so many times. I was like, somebody liked this trope. Um, and they never explore the implications of it. That's an ugly ripple. Really ugly. Because I mean, honestly, if that hap- if that was real, whether it was in a Sentinel Guide story or or a BDSM story or in a ABO story, the person that was susceptible to that, whether it be the Omega, the submissive, the guide, whatever, they'd live in like little enclaves or conclaves and they'd have like high walls and they would shoot any Sentinel or Dom or Alpha that came anywhere near them. And also, they would probably have collars um, on to hot to, to protect that spot um, that only they could unlock. If people just are not down for, you know, being able to be exploited like that. So, but apparently, but, some people think it's hot, and I don't. Well, no, the thing is, the I one imagine story, it, honestly, it's the same people who think that slavery is hot. So, okay. The one story that I, the first story I encountered this in. It was clear the author was not trying to write something ugly. In fact, they were trying. To, I think they probably have seen this trope in another story and were trying to use it in a way that wasn't as ugly. But the problem was, is that just having one dom who treats the submissive well or whatever, who wouldn't, and the submissive has confidence the dom would never abuse their trust, that actually doesn't deal with the consequences, the bad stuff, right? So I could tell they were trying to not write an ugly story. I absolutely could tell that they had good intentions in that regard, but they they did not have much ability to see the consequences of those choices and what it would obviously imply about the world. But as a result of me reading that kind of go, I didn't get all the way through it because I was like, oh my God, I can't. Cause all I could think about was the obvious implications of this piece of world building. So every time I encountered it in another story, I immediately exited. Nope, nope, nope. It became a hard no. Like, I don't even want to see how anybody explores this. Nope. Because it's just so, 
it's just a trope that I, I don't think I, there's some tropes you can't make unugly to me. And that's one of them. There's just no way to, I think bonding glands are a little weird. Honestly, I don't, little, little, maybe more than a little weird. That's just my feel about them, but I have seen them utilized in a way that they didn't strike a consent issue. As a matter of fact, they only are useful if both parties are consenting, but I just don't understand the, the function of them. Um, but yeah, most of the time when I've seen bonding lands used, it has a, a, a consent issue attached to it. But that's one where you actually could write it in a different way, that you could write it that it doesn't have a consent issue attached to it. But I don't know how you could do forcing somebody into subspace and rewrite that to, without an implied consent problem for the whole fucking universe. So <laughs> I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't think of anything that would solve that. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's about wanting a biological basis for bonding because you know bonding happens, physical bonding happens in werewolf fix all the time, but they don't have like an involuntary um, bond button that that somebody can push and it it destroys the other person's ability to consent. That is fetishizing rape. I mean, I have seen stories like that, and I know about them, but. Where I've seen it used, where I just kind of go, I don't think it's necessary, but okay, is it's more like it's the gland the guide has that produces um, the pheromones or hormones necessary for bonding to be achieved. So it is a, but it doesn't force them into it. And the and the ones I've read that I thought, I guess I thought it was kind of pointless, but um, it was almost like it actually read a little bit more like a neck fetish kind of thing where it's like they were putting something like a specific spot on a guide that a sentinel liked to suck on. And it was like it read a little bit like some sort of oral fetish. <laughs> I don't know. At least the, some, in a few of the stories I'm thinking of. I just didn't see the function of it because why would you need it just seems weird like that in order for bonding to happen, a guy needs a sentinel to suck at this spot on their neck. To me, I just don't it, get the function of that. Is it a vampire thing? Or, I mean, what is it? It could be. It could be. I mean, the thing is, it really works for some people. Some people really like it. They like to write it. And as, for me, as long as you're not making it so that it's involuntary to for the for the guide, the, bo- the guide loses their ability to consent because of that. As long as that's not included, I'm like, okay, you're trying to put some world building in. It's kind of a dud for me, but, you know, whatever. I just don't see the point. But people put things, you know, like, there were a few, this is like way, way, a long time ago, I read some Sentinel Guide stories where it's like, Guides were really super duper fragile, like super, super fragile. And um, like anything traumatic happened to them and they'd have to have like healing for months and months and months. And be in these safe contained environments where they could be healed and stuff. Okay. I mean, it, it was something I hadn't really seen before I saw it at that moment. And then I saw it more later. It didn't do anything for me, but it was clearly something that they felt was original that they really wanted to do. I just am not sure what overall function it serves to have guides be that delicate. Um. <laughs> hey, a stubbed toe is fiercely physically painful. So, you know, 
I think sometimes what happens with some of these things is they are used in a problematic way in stories where there becomes consent issues, okay? And people see them, and for some reason they like it, but they want to remove the consent issue, so they apply it in a different way because they want to use the trope, but they just want to take those consent problems out. And I get it. I just don't see the function of it at all. But, you know, if it really rings your chimes, there are a lot of things that rings people people's chimes that doesn't do anything for me at all. So, you know. I mean, we talked about the super sensitive sentinel and the super sentinel, the super sensitive guide is the same thing. I don't think either one of them evolutionarily are possible because the whole point of a sentinel is to protect the tribe. But if he can't leave his hut because the air hurts his feelings, how is he protecting the tribe? Right. So the guide I mean is the same way. If a guide is overwhelmingly sensitive to the emotions of others outside of his of his sentinel how is that how is that evolutionarily possible if during a traumatic event a guide becomes useless whether they're bonded or not why, why were they evolutionarily allowed to evolve that way that doesn't serve the tribe it doesn't serve anybody it doesn't serve them it makes no sense i mean like we talked about in the Sentinel podcast, I can see that Sentinels and guides both in their home environment where they need or their, you know, wherever they go to decompress, they it's going to be as comfortable for them as possible, both empathically speaking and from a sensory perspective. But that's what anybody does with their home. Y'all, I have 15 pillows on my bed. <laughs> I need every you. single one of them. <laughs> on my bed i promise you when I, I when i was working in a corporate job and going to work every day i didn't have any pillows in the office so no Get i have a pillowless i don't collect collect them i have a very complicated propping system don't judge me <laughs> and certain pillows have certain function there's my wrist pillows and there's my between the knee pillow and there's there's neck pillows and there's pillows for hugging because when you're laying on the side, you need to hug a pillow, and it's got to be the right pillow. The right shape. I'm surprised right all people don't have 15 pillows. There is a propping up the tablet pillow, yes. They actually make pillows specifically for your tablet. I saw one at Office Max. If you're sleeping on your side and you are not don't have a hugging pillow, you are missing out. Go get one. They need to be kind of squishy. I have a pillow have a lot specifically of designed to go between my legs. Uh-huh. I think your tiny dog is definitely a hugging pillow. Hearst, something is wrong with you. Who hurt you? Do you, do you need help? Hearst just said they don't need pillows. Uh, oh, well, see, right. Okay. That's basically a pillow. If you think I don't count my stuffed thymus as one of my pillows, you're just wrong. I mean, I have stuffed penguin, but I still have like five pillows on my bed. My thymus is the same um, size as some of my pillows, so. It definitely counts. <laughs> if you don't have a thymus, store-bought is fine. That's right. You got to get it where you can. <laughs> I probably think Kira should have bought herself a... Um, gallbladder? A gallbladder. It's from the iHeartGuts. It's from the iHeartGuts.com um, website. Uh, you know, honestly, my gallbladder caused me so much trouble. I don't want to... I, I don't want to memorialize it. <laughs> Hey, I had to have an open heart surgery to get this thing out. I I deserve a pillow. 
But I think that, you know, yes, it's perfectly okay for them to have a good environment to be homing in. But if you're riding a Sentinel and Guide who have a hard time functioning outside of their home because they're too sensitive one way or another, how exactly... Uh, what? It violates the core purpose of a Sentinel. Yeah, it's not functional. Yeah, From canon. It's not functional for them to be that delicate. Now, I do think that you know, companies or especially like federally funded companies, federal agencies would have some isolation switch because I do think that there are times, especially in high pressure jobs like law enforcement, where sentinels and guides can be sentinels or guides can become overwhelmed in the course of doing their job. Yeah. So, and I actually don't think that would be actually unique to sentinels and guides. You know, mundane people get overwhelmed doing our jobs too, right? Sometimes you just need a room to cry or scream in. We used to have this one company I worked at. We used to have nap rooms. Um, and they had the like these little, sort of like these funny little, it was not quite a pod, but like you kind of, it's weird how you got into them, but it kind of kept your head kind of covered. So it blocked out a lot of the light. And you could just go in and kind of retreat to these little rooms. It's just one pod in the room. It's just you, you go in, you reserve it for half an hour, take a little power nap, get your, or sometimes people just went in there and got their shit together. Yeah, I kind of like that. Not exactly like that. That not exactly that one, but yeah, like that. I I find that very disconcerting. It is. Our the ones we had weren't quite didn't quite look like that like that because that person is not able to roll on their side in that thing, and I I always was on my side in one. Um. But anyway, it's. I just, mean, I nearly had a full blown panic attack in an, M, in an MRI, so that looks worse than an MRI. Some <laughs> some people. Um, some companies recognize that people need places to decompress. So I don't think like having a, an isolation room is representative of a fragile Sentinel guide. It's more of a giving them a place that they could actually go in. I mean, like what if you're at a Sentinel who's at a really smelly crime scene, they might need a place where they could go in and like get the smell off of them because you don't want to be constantly stimulating their sense of smell or whatever. So I don't think, I think accommodating somebody who's highly skilled and brings a lot of a lot of uh, benefit to an organization. I don't think that's a representative of them being fragile. Um, yeah. But the but I do see them. That's different than them being written like they're going to fall apart at any moment. That if they use their senses at all, that you know that they're going to wind up you know at the center under under um, protection. Somebody uh, pinged me that asked me about. Um, that I'd made Tony fragile in um, I wasn't waiting for you because he had sensory collapse at the end of that story. Uh, and that was, I felt like that was a really different situation. It wasn't that Tony was all that fragile. It was that his guide rejected him, but then he found out that his guide was being hunted by a serial killer. And so he goes into this kind of just before, just before a fer feral state, the first sentinel heightened awareness hypervigilance because whether or not his guide wants to be with him he wants to be with his guide so he's dealing with rejection but he has to protect his guide too so he feels this imperative to protect him so he calls in and gets authorized authorization to do a manhunt so he goes without sleep and is basically using his nose to hunt down um the serial killer that's targeting his guide's team and then when he finally catches the guy um his guide is present his guide who he has to push away because who he wants to reach out to because his senses are overwhelmed from this manhunt that took 
you know, quite a bit of time. And he wants to reach out to his guy, but he can't because his guy to say he doesn't want that. So he's respecting that. And it just put him in a state of all of his senses just revved up really high. And I have had him going into hypersensory collapse. So, but I didn't think of that. So he was a little bit fragile because of the sensory collapse at the end. But I actually think what he went through leading up to the sensory collapse was the indicated the exact opposite of him being fragile. Because if he was fragile, he never would have made it through it. Let's go back to that saying that, you know, that um, bravery isn't the absence of fear. And sometimes um, when it comes to Sentinels, um, their skill set um, is seen as an asset and a burden. And it's not realistic to explore only one half of that. And often when you see the fragile sentinel being explored, all they are is a burden to those, even to themselves. They can't use their senses. They can barely function. They have to live basically in a clean room. Um, and you're thinking to yourself, why, why on earth is this person online as a sentinel? What is their imperative? If they were living in primitive conditions, they would be dead. Right. If they didn't have that clean room, they would be dead. Because I wasn't waiting for you. Tony tracked a killer from New York to Virginia with his nose. So that is not somebody who's fragile. But at the end of it, at the end of it, he ultimately is not a bonded sentinel. And at the end of the day, he pushed himself way further than an unbonded sentinel ever should. Because that is part of my world building, is that the bond with a guide is what allows a sentinel to function at their highest, at their best. So an unbonded sentinel functioning at that level is more vulnerable. And they're not even supposed to do it. It's the way I write the world. So yes, Tony kind of fell apart at the end of that one. But I thought I set the good precedent for why that happened. Anyway, I wasn't mad that somebody asked me that question because I did talk to them about it and explain, you know, my perception on it, that there's a difference between mm -hmm. events pushing a sentinel beyond their ability to cope and um, it somebody being inherently fragile. Um, in demons also, all of the sentinels eventually, they didn't all collapse, but after the end of that battle, they all wound up in isolation for a week. But I also think that I did explain about how overwhelming those olfactory shot grenades were for them. I do have a fic where um, John comes online as an alpha sentinel. Um, it, his, his onlining circumstances aren't really outlined, but he is isolated by um, the sentinel and guide. I think I used center in that, but if I went back to it, I'd probably do foundation. Um, he's isolated for training. And he's kept um, separate, uh, not because he's physically fragile, but because um, he's emotionally fragile because he doesn't have a guide. He's emotionally vulnerable. Um, he, they're, they're seeking a guide for him. He's in, he's in training. He's not, um, it, but in primitive circumstances, his guide, he wouldn't come online without his guide. But when you build a world where sentinels and guides are coming online everywhere, everywhere, and there's and you don't have that natural circumstances of them living with a the tribe, um, you know, 
I don't know, in like 300 AD and they come online and their guide's already there because that's what, you know, nature would provide. But in a modern urban circumstance, you have these sentinels and guides coming online in your world building. And so they, so you have to develop methods by which they are um, trained and protected until they can stand on their own two feet. And you can't expect anybody coming online as a sentinel, um, as an adult who has no training to manage their own senses. That doesn't make them fragile. It just makes them ignorant of their circumstances. But when I talk about fragile, I'm talking about a sentinel who knows how to use their senses, um, can't manage them, doesn't try to manage them. Um, it is, has, uh, I don't understand it. I don't understand what the point is. Because a sentinel's biggest strength is his senses, but by that same token, his biggest strength would be his his biggest vulnerability as well. Because mm -hmm. the easiest way to get to a sentinel other than to do something to their guide, which would be colossally stupid, would be to get to them through their senses, right? Because it is if they're if they if they're heightened, they can be hurt with them. So it's realistic that criminals would go after a sentinel in that area. And so there would be times when sentinels will get hurt through their senses. And that's just realistic. But, you know, th that they can't get from point A to point B or, you know, that you, you know. In that particular world, when, when, I, when I designed it, um, I designed it in such a way that I would not do today. But th that particular thing, and I wrote, I, I first wrote it with Jim and Blair, but I reworked it for John and Rodney since I didn't want to write Jim and Blair anymore. Um, but going back, I don't think I would write it the same way where the, that basically that, that Sentinels had to have a guide. And if they didn't, um, bond within a certain period of time, that survive, that survivability was low. And I don't know why I did that. I think maybe influence from other stories that I had read. Cause Fanon, Fanon influences you in ways that sometimes you don't see in the moment that you can look back on and see in retrospect. But in both versions, in both the version with Jim and Blair and the version with John and Rodney, Blair was in South America when Jim came online and Rodney was in Pegasus when John came online. And so in both situations, um, they're one of the last online guides available to the center to be to be introduced to this alpha sentinel that's come online and the alpha sentinel is rare in that particular world building um very rare and uh so the center has been bending over backwards to introduce him to willing guides and he's very clear that he will not meet somebody who's unwilling to bond um and so and they think he's going to die because he can't find a match and I wouldn't write that that way today, but I do think that sentinels who aren't bonded are vulnerable because that's the whole point of a guide. And I do think that they can't use their senses um, extensively without a guide, whether it's a conservatorship or an actual bond guide, you know, bonded guide. Um, right. They need somebody to watch their back. Otherwise, they have what happened, like what I had in I Wasn't Waiting for You, which is um, pushed too hard and there was a price to be paid. 
That's just the way it went. Now he did have a guide with him. That's why he was able to push as hard as he did. Fornell was with him, yeah. but um, he pushed it really hard for an unbonded sentinel in a way that he shouldn't have, but he felt compelled to do it. Both Daisy, both, both watch and wash the back. <laughs> um, I was like, what the hell is she talking about? But yeah, absolutely. Because I, you know, I'm there for that. If you're gonna have a sentinel, you might as well wash his back while you're watching it. Um, Speaking anyway. of, I have this, I have this ridiculous little plot, what plot uh, story on my site where uh, Rodney and John are taking a shower, and Rodney gets something he didn't think he could ever get, and um, someone, someone messaged me and asked me. She said, first I want to thank you for that picture." that mental picture of, of, of Joe Flanagan naked in the shower. <laughs> but second, is there ever going to be a sequel to that? <laughs> I'm like, is there really potential for a blowjob fix sequel? I don't know. <laughs> well, you could argue that it could be anything. <laughs> right? You say, oh, that already exists. It's uh, it's this, it's it's interim. I mean, I don't know. Interim's a terrible choice, but... <laughs> So yeah, it's called Hard. It's on my website. And I was just like, I don't even know why I wrote it. Sometimes you just get a little idea in your head. You want to write it. Sometimes you just need to write a blowjob today. Um, <laughs> just put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> so people be like, don't you mean give a blowjob? No, asshole. Oh. I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> um, but we went way far from established relationship there. Uh, but when you're writing an established relationship, I think it's really critical that you really think about what their relationship is like. If you're writing a sequel, you've got some foundation for how they're what their dynamic is. But like Kira mentioned, you also then are at a disadvantage a little bit because you do have to stay consistent with their dynamic in your other story. Um, but just think about you got to really think through the nuance of how they get together. What is their rhythm like? Um, you know, you can't have them telling each other things that they should already know. That's actually one of the clunk clunkiest things I see in established relationship stories is revealing of information that, you know, a couple's been together for five years or whatever. And the revealing of information that through dialogue that that they should absolutely know. Right. Like but how what you're trying to do is avoid info dumping. But what you end up creating is a characterization inconsistency. Right. It's like, why doesn't John already know how Rodney takes his coffee? That seems a little strange. Um, Practically everybody on Atlantis should know how McKay takes his coffee. Right. Why doesn't John know Rodney's allergic to citrus or something? You know, you just, you got to be careful about things you put into a new, a first time story. Some of those details you can't put in in the same way in an established relationship story. Um, like, it, everybody knows Rodney's allergic to citrus, but we'll use this as an example. Instead of Rodney telling John, you know, I'm allergic to citrus. If for some reason you need to bring that up, you have a new person on the city and John is reminding them. And as a reminder, Dr. McKay is allergic to citrus. There's no surge of citrus allowed in, you know, these areas or whatever. That could be your way of relaying that information is you bring in a third party that is conveyed to. That's a ridiculous example, but go with me on this. Um, but that's when it, it is something that sometimes it just kind of lands badly. It's like, why would they be this far into this relationship? And 
this this obvious thing has never come up you know um or like i read a story once where um it, the couple had been together for a while and all of a sudden you hear this i can't believe you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle did they just start doing that did you That's just something I, knew about, I knew that about my husband like on our third date because <laughs> he told I mean, me Honestly, I know this about people I barely know. Because if I've used your bathroom and you leave your toothpaste on the counter and you squeeze from the middle, I took note of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you just, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like just things couples should know. So you just got to think about that. Where are they in their relationship? Um, what information, you know, would they have already told one another? And the thing is, so if, instead of John being surprised by the fact that Rodney squeezes his toothpaste in the middle, you could have him bitch about it instead. McKay, will you please stop using my toothpaste if you're going to switch? If you're going to squeeze it in the middle, yeah. <laughs> now we're giving what's wrong with you? We're giving silly examples, but it actually where it comes up more often is when like a a character need you need to relay some information you've inserted about the character. Like you need to relay. That's your character as a stepbrother. Okay, let's say that's really important. Now, in canon, your character didn't have a stepbrother. So you need to relay. You've decided to put this into your story. And this, If it, these couples been together for five years, you better have a damn good reason why you're, that you're just now revealing to the, their spouse that there's, a, that there's a brother out there. Right? Because family discussions happen before five years come around. So if you're trying to avoid info dumping on the reader by having this kind of thing come up through conversation, maybe it shouldn't be conversation between the established couple. It could be, but sometimes you just need it to be a thought. You just need it to be a thought as opposed to, um, or if there needs to be a big explanation about, you know, Ezra and Maud Standish and all of that stuff. I'm talking to you, Queenie. So that conversation <laughs> needs to happen with somebody who's not the spouse because the spouse should already know. So it's just be careful. If you're used to using dialogue to impart information or couples have a, you know, a little conversation to let the reader know stuff, that's fine. It's just make sure it's not something that shouldn't already be known. Um, and also I think we probably need to do a podcast on what the difference between exposition is and narrative. Just saying. I think a lot of times people accuse people of uh, info dumping um, in, in their narrative when they're not. And I think a lot of times people confuse exposition with narrative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're doing, yeah. So maybe we do need to, to, to spend some time with that. The difference between um, info dumping and providing information that progresses your plot. I think sometimes that line can be a little blurry as well. It is. And some people have a higher tolerance for um, um, info dumping. But you just have to be... And there's honestly a difference between info dumping and, and exposition, too. Because a certain amount of exposition is expected. There's yeah. actually in the... Is it the seven... The seven act... The seven arcs... The seven... Is it the five or the seven of the narrative style... Um, where one the of seven. the where one of the the first stage is exposition, like they actually name it that, because you expect. I, I think it's seven. You're, yeah, so you're, uh, but you're supposed to have it, it in some narrative styles. They expect you to kind of have an and sort of an expositive phase early on. It's 
it's all in how you do it, you know? How much I would say the opening of the first Harry Potter book would, would be a perfect example of that. Yeah. So some it, it's not uncommon for you to have exposition some of it in your first couple of chapters. It's a matter of how much do you do it once and how much info dumping do you do in your exposition? So that can we can have a whole discussion about the terminology and where the lines are. And it can get blurry because some readers have no patience for exposition at all. Um, and, some, and they will only read dialogue. Right. And there, and there are some writers who basically only write dialogue, dialogue. I mean, you're lucky if you get a dialogue tag to distinguish who's talking, which always reads me more like a script. But, you know, people, I need I, I need dialogue tags, y'all. I need to know who's speaking. Give me a beat or something. Um, but everybody, there's, so there's some different writing styles for everybody. And you need to know what kind of writer you are. But regardless of the kind of writer you are and how much exposition you like and how much detail you like to give and how, how much description you want to include. Like, I'm not somebody who enjoys reading a lot of description. But there are people who want to know what every single person in every single scene is wearing. I so don't. There is a match okay. reader for you as a writer, but there is still, for every one of those writers, there is still the difference. There is a line about where you cross over into info dumping. A anytime you're giving a detailed class schedule in Harry Potter, you are info dumping. I'm just saying. And Jean, when you spend a whole chapter telling us how to cure leather with our own pee, <laughs> you are info dumping. Jean, I know I you're really proud of that insurance, that, 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 that research you did. I know. I know. I know, honey. We can tell. And actually, that's what it is. I can usually tell when somebody is really proud of something they've done. It's because they're going to tell us all about it. And actually working out a Hogwarts class schedule that actually makes sense for them to hit, you know, hit all their classes and for the teachers not to be double booked and stuff. Um, it's probably a lot of work. But it doesn't change the fact that it's info dumping. Yeah, I mean, absolutely be proud of it. There's there's some stuff I've done in my world building or in research and stuff before. I'm like, wow, I'm really proud of that. It doesn't actually fit in the narrative of my story, and it really shouldn't. Now, if you, like, let's say you... Um, I mean, Tolkien was clearly proud of his I exterior work. <laughs> oh. Lord have mercy. You could tell he was paid by the word. But also, he also like published a whole bunch of like appendices for his work. So you would know that, okay, this is what I gave you before, but this is all the work I did afterward or during or before that I, that I need you to see. Um, if you're like, if you're doing a, like, let's say you're doing a um, Stargate story, um, Stargate Atlantis. I was going to say Star Trek Atlantis. That's why I kind of stumbled there. And Star Trek Atlantis doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I wouldn't be mad at it, but it just doesn't actually make any real fan. Although, sense. I read a really awesome story called Where Did All the Physics Go? Where Rodney and John end up on the Enterprise. That's different. old school Kirk and Spock. I, <laughs> Excellent welcome, story. You're welcome to call that Star Trek Atlantis, but no, it just, <laughs> my mouth didn't want to form Stargate Atlantis. But I'm reading, so let's say you're writing an SGA story where they're doing better prep for the expedition. That's actually a trope that I love. Me too. Um, I love the, the getting a better mission prep story. And you can actually zoom in on some things that they're doing better. Like talk about some of the things that are in the prep list that's in the, um, oh my God, I'm blanking what that's called. 
all the stuff they're taking with them. Whatever, that stuff. You can manifest. work. The manifest, thank you. You can zoom in on the manifest here and there to talk about better planning. But to actually give the entire manifest would be so boring. We don't care. We don't care. So you got to resist. So even if you figure it out, if you sat down and figured out everything that a hundred some odd people are going to need to live in another galaxy for a year, if you sat down and figured that out, you're probably going to be really proud of it. <laughs> resist the urge. To I was, but I didn't, I, but I didn't put it on my, in my story. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's also like, it would be the same thing. I mean, we see the people share the manifest more than we see people mentioning the actual um, members of the expedition. So like, let's say you figured out the names for all 120 some odd people that go on the initial expedition. I think I always figure we figured it's about a hundred people. Okay. So good on you. You named all of those people. Do not give all of their names. That was just, that's crazy cakes. Um, and, and so anyway, to circle back on why that's important. When you're doing an established relationship, especially if it's not a sequel, there's going to be an urge to info dump about their relationship up to that point. And it's really important that you work out their relationship up to that point, that you know their relationship up to that point, and resist the urge to tell anything that's not mission critical. I think... One of the ways that you can kind of um, install that intimacy into a relationship, instead of John not knowing how Rodney takes his coffee, so have John go to the cafeteria and make coffee for them both and bring it to Rodney in the lab. You know? Yeah. And you could have him make, you could have the note about that he added cream to Rodney's coffee and sugar to his own and took it to Rodney and dropped it off and then went about his day. And you don't need to actually have it called out because the reader should absorb that John knows exactly how Rodney, Rodney takes his coffee. Without having to, you know, wrap yourself around the axle about it, you know. So with an established relationship, you got to just be careful that you have all that stuff on lock for yourself and resist the urge to share anything that actually isn't moving your story forward. Because if you needed to share every de if it's actually important to your story to share every detail of their relationship up to that point, then you're writing the wrong story. Shouldn't be important in an established relationship story to share every detail of how they got together and every detail of their life. So just, and if it is, if that's the more interesting, riveting story, then you're kind of starting in the wrong place. And it's perfectly okay to acknowledge that. I've done that more than once. I'm like, oh, I started in the wrong place. Well, shit. Time to back up. <laughs> and I go back to the fucking drawing board. Time to replot. And sometimes that replotting happens between chapter one and chapter two. And I'm on Rift Trade. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I've posted one part and I'm scratching my head going, hmm. fuck me. <laughs> Look what I did. Fuck hmm. me. <laughs> Why do I always do this in public? Does anybody have any questions about the established relationship side of this? But if you wanted to write like a friends to lovers thing, um, you could explore the intimacy of their relationship the same way. Um, say, um, 
you know, have them have have your characters um, meet for lunch, and one character is late, and the other one texts the person and says, "Hey, order for me. I'm on my way." But they don't tell the person what to order. But your character knows what's to knows what's to order because they know this person really well. So when the, your other character gets there, they've got their favorite meal waiting on them, and tea just like they like it, or coffee just like they like it. You know, or whatever you know so you can build these little intimacy moments by imparting knowledge that your characters have without shoving it in your reader's face because sometimes those small details matter the most there is no restaurant that i go to with my husband that i could not order for him if i if he didn't tell me what he wanted i mean we've been together for almost two decades so it would be a real damn shame as his wife if I didn't know <laughs> if I didn't know how he liked his eggs or how he took his coffee. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> That'd be crazy. <laughs> you, you, you need to know uh, what what your partner likes to read, um, how they take their eggs, how they take their coffee, if they like hot tea or cold tea, if they like green tea or Earl Grey. <laughs> You know, these are very important things to know about your partnership. Um, or if you're going to explore like a friends to lovers thing, um, that speaks to intimacy. Knowing these things about your friend. Because some of these things, I mean, you wouldn't know about a casual friend. Someone who is not in your space a lot that you would know about a friend you spend a great deal of time with. Like, I used to know these two girls, and they hung out. They were thick as thieves. It would be really funny to watch them in a restaurant or something, because they would order, and then when their food would come out, they would exchange things off each other's plate. Like, if, if they got a hamburger, the one didn't eat tomatoes, but she always ordered tomatoes because her friend liked extra tomatoes. She always said she didn't never took the tomato off her burger because her friend actually preferred lots of tomatoes. So she would take her tomato off her off her burger and put it on her friend's plate. Without, they wouldn't even discuss it. It would just be a thing that they did. You know? I don't... I wasn't surprised at all when, when they got married. <laughs> It didn't surprise me at all to get that save the date. I was like, oh, thank God. I was really worried you were never going to get there. <laughs> I thought you guys were never going to catch a clue. <laughs> yeah, um, my mom loves tomatoes. I do the same thing with her. But that's, you know, that, that also speaks to um, acknowledgement of the, uh, the other person that you're with, you know, knowing what they like and knowing they would like extra of it and making sure that you don't take it off your plate so they can have it. You know, it's, it's just, you know. What you do for people you care about. Right. So. Just make sure if you're writing your established relationship. That it doesn't actually read like a new relationship. Because it will just throw the vibe off for your reader. In, in subtle ways. Um, which is why. You have to kind of th at least think about. What is their relationship like? What is their dynamic together? You know what are their routines? So that it feels natural. Um, and I would think. A Sentinel Guide established relationship even if they're fairly new in their relationship which is how i'm writing steve and tony one thing they're going to have is even if they don't know everything about each other yet is there are not a lot of physical boundaries between the sentinel and the guide I, to me they're much more physically in each other's space than i would write actually a lot of couples that have been together a week right um mm -hmm. so 
if they've been together, because I think that, you know, where I'm writing it, they've been together like a month or something is where I'm starting. Um, that's actually not a lot of time to get to know somebody. But there's still going to be a physical intimacy that is, and, and an emotional intimacy because they're bonded, they have an empathic bond with each other that eclipses their actual knowledge of one each other, one another. So it's it's a little bit incongruous in a way that one aspect of their relationship is really accelerated, but they still have to learn about each other. They still have to learn each other's quirks. Um, they need to have the dreaded socks discussion. Actually, I probably have had that, but you know. Um, man, the sock situation. <laughs> yeah, a month, a month in, you could still be arguing about socks. Yeah, yeah, whether or not they do the awful thing and wear socks to bed. I mean, who Some does people that? do it. Yeah, Ugh, Rampart. I, just, I have to be in Randolph Rampart. Look, y'all. Look, y'all. If you write Randolph Rampart, that motherfucker better 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 be wearing socks to bed. That's in his character bio. He wears socks to bed. I don't understand how you guys regulate your temperature if you wear socks to bed. I mean, that's what I do. I get hot. I stick one foot out of the covers. If I get really hot, I I do the same thing. I stick both feet out. Socks are the temperature regulator. And if I've got socks on, not socks, bare feet are the temperature regulator. If I've got socks on, it doesn't work. My temperature control does not work if I don't, if I have socks on. Also, your feet don't move well over the sheets. And I don't know. Hearse, I once plotted a Harry Potter story where Harry thought there was a there was a monster under his cot un, in in the cupboard, and this this happened to me as a child. I they they told me there was a monster under the bed, so I couldn't get out of the bed at night because I was a roamer because I didn't sleep well, so I would get up and roam. So my uncle, he's an asshole, um, told me there was a monster under the bed that would get me if I got up at night. Well, he misunderstood my he misunderstood my personality. Because for a total, for more than a week, I would stick my foot over the side of the bed. I was going to catch that monster and make him my friend. So I plotted the story where Harry Potter does that, but he actually catches a monster. (laughs) It's a snake. That's really (laughs) cute. (laughs) There was, um, I watched this thing, I read it, no bread. I read this thing about bats, that vampire bats, the part of your body they're most likely to go after is your toes. Because if your toes are uncovered, your toes wiggle when you, when you sleep, your toes move a lot. And so they look like prey to vampire bats and they'll go after your toes. Which, you know, that could freak some people out, right? But I was more like, uh, there was one night, I don't remember what was going on with me, but I had my feet out, both feet out. I was hot. Y'all, it was hot. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about vampire bats. And I just said, dinner, motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Not that there are bats at all have any access to my feet. But, you know, the things you think about. (laughs) But I do regulate my temperature with my feet. But as I've gotten older, when my feet get cold, they get hot. I mean, they they hurt. Yeah. So there, there are times when I wear socks like... Even to bed because my feet are so cold they hurt. No. And so, you know, that's an old lady arthritis thing. I've broken both my feet multiple times. I hate socks. I hate socks with a passion. So um But Rampart wears socks to bed. That's his character bio. She put that ugliness in his bio. Can you believe that? Believe me, he and Tony are gonna have words about this. He he will take them off when he fucks, but he but he will put them back on before he goes to sleep. <laughs> I am gonna use him coming online as a sentinel as a reason he had to break the sock habit. <laughs> 
it bothers him in the bed that he can't have the socks on <laughs> in the bed since he became a sentinel, you know. <laughs> he better mourn it. He better y'all, deeply mourn his socks. I have a real grudge about <laughs> socks, y'all. I've said it before. I spent I didn't put socks on for the entirety of 2019. I managed to go an entire calendar year without wearing socks. Meanwhile, had, I'm wearing cabin socks on my feet. How? <laughs> how? I just didn't put them on. She lived in an area that didn't require socks. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true. Was, I have I have discovered, I've, I found my threshold. I can be outside without socks down to 34 degrees. Any lower than that, I have to put socks on. And so it just didn't become an issue until January of 2020 when I had to put on socks because I was like, it is too fucking cold. And I had to be outside when it was below 30. And I was like, she wears sandals year round, Margaret. <laughs> By the way, earlier we did discuss um, Supernatural, and you were not here to apologize for your fandom. <laughs> Which is a joke, by the way. It's just a joke. <laughs> it's a long running joke. One time we were in a podcast and she wasn't here, but somebody else apologized for her. <laughs> it was really cute. I wear those about 300 out of the 365 days of the year. No socks required. They are a little bit difficult under freezing temperatures, though. You little weirdo. Judge me. I don't like socks. Yep, 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 yep. Toe shoes. She wears toe shoes. Yes, she does. Everybody has a flaw, y'all. We just have to accept her. Toe shoes and all. Hey, I don't wear socks with Birkenstocks, so just accept it for... Is, I love is, Birkenstocks. Are Birken- they back in style yet? Because I'm looking forward to it. Birkenstocks are great, but not with socks. I mean, what the fuck is that? I wear socks with my Birkenstocks. I don't care. Girl. I did it when I was young because I didn't care because I was young. And I'm going to do it when I'm old because I'm old. And I don't care. <sighs> That's just so wrong. Socks with any kind of sandal. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand. Socks are for closed shoes. I just, that's it. That's the rule. Which is why I don't wear socks and I don't wear closed shoes. Okay. So we will digress. I, Jilly will digress much worse than this if somebody doesn't have any questions. <laughs> but will digresses. Best line ever. Yes. Almost any podcast would be, but they digressed. Yes. Back to leadership. <laughs> I um, what I would say um, we're gonna talk about this more with the guide when, when we do the guide podcast, which will be probably the next one we do. Um, is that uh, I firmly believe in the partnership dynamic, and the partnership dynamic requires equality. Um, and so I hate to see guides put in a position, um, in the narrative, in a story, way where they are considered to be weaker or fragile or um a burden on the sentinel or um unnecessary to a sentinel i mean it's okay for a sentinel to think he doesn't need one <laughs> but if you're gonna ride the sentinel and guide dynamic he needs to learn the error of his ways <laughs> yeah i wrote a um not wrote <laughs> i did not write it i am thinking about writing it in november but i did not write this yet um i plotted a sentinel story obviously duh um where the eugenics war was about um 
trying to get rid of. Talk about Star Trek, by the way. Star Trek, yes, yes, not not any other kind of eugenic wars, but it's Star Trek that it was actually about um, trying to perfect the whole Sentinel thing. They wanted to perfect the Sentinel gene, and whoever the 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 leadership at the time believed that the flaw in the Sentinel was the need for a guide. And so what they were trying to do was alter them genetically to not need guides. And what they actually succeeded in doing was destroying a sentinel's No, destroying a sentinel's ability to bond. So oh, those bastards. Khan and all of his people were very protective of guides, but they couldn't actually achieve a bond with them. So they had so Khan was a sentinel and he um had wanted a guide, but could not achieve a bond with a guide because those pathways had been basically destroyed genetically. And that's why, so they protected guides and they were slaughtering everybody else basically because they were furious about this consistent inability to. So then I wrote that they never turned on guides, but society did eventually have to turn on them because they were too dangerous because they were just killing um because they would go feral really easily. Like somebody would sneeze on a guide wrong and they'd lose it. So I was setting up a different um, reason for why Khan was the way he was. Um, so um, anyway, so he's a, uh, he does get, he, the story, the way I plotted it, he does get fixed. But because a, a shaman could have fixed him, but there weren't any shamans at the time of the, in the eugenics war to be able to solve that problem. So yeah, I could actually see. So I think I agree with the whole idea that you have to. I want to write always write stories with Sentinel Guide are equally valued. Um, but I could definitely see kind of a kind of dystopian view where it's perceived the Sentinel is what's needed, and therefore the Guide is a liability, or the Guide is just an accessory. Um, Vance had that opinion in um, Ascendant. Yeah, that I wrote with Tony and um, Steve is Mothership all aboard the mothership um, that, that because Steve was the Sentinel, then he was in charge and he made all the rules and he made all the decisions. And so Tony wasn't necessary for the conversation, even though the crime had been committed against him. And Tony was like, and, and Steve was like, um, no, <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> and fuck you very much. And Keith's going to clop your table and kick your ass. <laughs> um, Still my favorite, still my favorite spirit animal, Keaton. Keaton is awesome. So, um, just be careful with your world building because obviously that plot, what I plotted with this Star Trek thing, has some ugly implications about how guides were treated by people in power. You know, those basically those who are not sentinels treated. They saw guides as they basically wanted them to be gotten rid of, and they saw them as a distraction. They saw them as a liability. That has deep implications for what the world was like for guides at that time. Now it does get solved because by the time I the story starts, it's it's way in the future. But guides and sentinels just left entirely. They um, after first contact, the way I plotted it was after first contact. Um, Vulcans considered. Um, Guides. We did a whole podcast on this, actually. Yeah, but Vulcan, Vulcans considered guides a, to be a um, um, basically psionic brethren. That guides had empathic abilities using psionic energy, and Vulcans had telepathic abilities using psionic energy. But when the guides reached out for help relocating, the Vulcans gave them that assistance. And when the last shaman left Earth, there were no more guides ever came online on Earth. So, um. Yeah, I think we did talk about it in a podcast, but I don't remember which one. 
Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. We, we, we were talking about rippling and um, um, psionic energy. There was a we, but we did a whole. There was a whole podcast on that topic. It was a, it was a plot drift. To look for it, I don't remember which yeah. one it was, but it was. It's always I plotted this a long time ago, but it was implicitly a very ugly world for Sentinels and Guides at that time, and the at the time of like you know the Star Trek the Star Trek reboot the Jim Kirk's time, um, Sentinels and Guides is considered like a blight on their history, the way Sentinels and the way Guides were treated in the past, um, and that they, you know, they'd never had a Sentinel Guide come online again. And then after the destruction of Vulcan, they start coming online again. They start waking up. Um, it's because of the traumatic ripples the destruction of Vulcan caused. All of those telepaths dying all at once um, caused huge shockwaves through the psionic plane. And it triggered the reemergence of sentinels and guides on earth and they have to reach out to where the sentinels and guides have settled to ask for help because they don't know what to do with them so that's where the story starts is with you know jim being retasked we know they're about to start their five-year mission and they get diverted to go pick up um a delegation from where the sentinels and guides now live and bring them back to earth and that's when the shaman they bring back finds Khan because he can feel him and fixes him. So anyway, we did, we did t do that work up that in a plot podcast, but the reason I mentioned it here is because there is implicit ugliness in what the world was like. I would not choose to write that again, but I wouldn't write a world that looked like that because I wouldn't want to write guides being in that position, but it is implied how ugly that was. Um, so you have to be careful about if you're going to actually put something like that into your world building um, where like guide rights are restricted or whatever, that it that you understand the ramifications of what you're putting in the story and what it means for your couple and how the power dynamic between them is going to always be off. Um, in Journey Home, the basically part of the premise for Journey Home is that um, some, you know, politician way in the past got it in their head that guide rights should be suppressed, that, you know, if Sentinels can't function without a guide, then guide should be, like, mandated to bond and stuff. And they got more traction with that than they should have. And it was considered the wrong thing to do, but it still got further than anybody would have wanted it to. And as a result, people started seeing becoming a guide as a negative thing. And that's where the development of guide suppression drugs came from, is try to prevent your child from becoming a guide before their rights can be taken away. But it started killing the children. And so the government stepped in and dealt with the whole situation. So it was like a, a blip, like a negative thing that had happened way in the past. But it had had ramifications that continued because there were some people who still continued to hold the belief that being a guide was bad because I'd attempted suppression of guide rights in the past. Um, and the ripple, of course, being that Tony was given one of those drugs to prevent him from coming online. And so it became part of the, it was part of the plot device for the story. But while I will, I will write it where something like that happens way in the past or and they're working, they're working through the ripples of it even now. I wouldn't choose to write it where that was actively going on in the world because I wouldn't anyway. It just is um, 
It's sad and mean. It is. And it's, I don't want to write guides in that position. I don't want, I don't want to write guides who worry about their rights being taken away or worried about being forced into a bond or, um, and you know, I know it just, it just feels, some people really dig that dystopian stuff, but I don't No, It just feels (laughs) depressing. It just feels depressing. And so if, if that's not your thing, you still have to be careful about if that is your thing, you're going to put that in on purpose and you're going to, you're going to explore those ripples for all they're worth. But if it's not actually your thing, you just need to be careful about putting those kinds of things in your story and think through the ramifications of them. Because if I were a guide, it didn't matter how much I cared about my sentinel, I, there would be part of me that would be still be resentful that if you didn't have a choice but to be there. I muted myself. We had a trope drift in 2017 called Trope Drift Star Trek. That's yeah, probably in that. And the other one was in 2014, and I don't think we'd met yet. Met, met. Um, I mean, I, I first approached the challenge in 2000, November of 2013, but I don't didn't even join Facebook until April of 2014, I think. And then I didn't, I don't think I started so if, actually conversing with you towards the end of that year. If, if this is not it, then we're going to have to do a deep dive on finding it because it's not listed as Star Trek. <laughs> but 2017 seems about right, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. So... I feel like that's the one, but um, and I think I, I do think it got brought out more than once, Susan. I think you're right, but I also think that there was one podcast where we dug deep into the whole plot and about how Jim and Spock go into the Sentinel and God planet. Yeah, because I mean, Jim and Spock would come online. Of course, they're going to be some of the ones that come online, so that's part of it. Um. I think we talked about because I also had this whole talked about this whole theory I had about psionic wells and that that part of the problem that Vulcan the Vulcans were having on their new planet was the psionic well had different harmonics kind of thing and they needed like somebody to help make it more compatible for them anyway was, we did talk we got through into kind of all of that in that podcast wherever that was and if it wasn't that one it might have been one of the Ripple podcasts. Because we dig, we 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 kind of dug into the ripples of your world building. I kind of remember that. Yeah, because I, I made myself sad because it was so dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do think seven, 2017 and 2018 are probably the sweet spot on 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 finding that in the podcast. And um, if I'm sorry that the podcast isn't more searchable, search friendly. <laughs> It is what it is. Because I think a lot of times the podcast is just one big giant conversation that I've been having with Lady Holder and Jillian for uh, for a very long time. <laughs> it could have been one of the podcasts. I don't know why I typed this just to say it, whatever. I'm sitting here trying not to sneeze. Um, it could be one of the podcasts where we did leading up to the whole new world challenge because it does seem like that that would have been because the purpose of that one was that Tony Dinozo was going to be in the whole new world and the whole new world was going to be Star Trek. Okay. In that case, let me go to. I just remember when the whole new world challenge, if the whole new world challenge was November of 2017, then that Star Trek trope drift is right in line with that. Okay. Whole new world was November, 2016. Was it? Yes. 
I thought 2016, no, 2015 was a single POV challenge. Yes. Up Close and Personal was November. So Whole New World was 2016. So that 2017 podcast might not be the one where we first brought it up. Yeah, wow. I plotted this. I plotted this further back than I remembered. Oh, well. Some ideas just keep rattling around in your head. So if that was in November of 2016, then probably in September or October, we would have had that conversation, right? Yeah, or it could have been something we discussed after it as an idea I didn't write or something. We actually have one called Rough Trade November 2016. September 24th, 2016. It's called Rough Trade November 2016. So one of those. Maybe. <laughs> Sorry. Someone told me that the podcast was a culture. Or that it had a culture. And maybe that's true. A, a very rambling. Often off topic culture. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions about established relationships that they would like us to poke at? We are master pokers. And you may take that ever how you will. And we all got rebaptized whether we needed it or not. Whenever somebody mentions the world's girl to me, I think about that song that Ray Stevens sung about the squirrel in the church. The Mississippi something revival. Oh my god. <laughs> There are times, y'all, that I worry about us. I do. <laughs> and by us, I mean Kira. The Mississippi Scroll Revival. Yeah. <sighs> that's, not, I, I, that's my favorite line. Seven deacons and the pastor got saved, and we all got rebaptized, whether we needed it or not. <laughs> and now we're, well, I can say now I worry about Boo, but I was already worried about Boo because of the peeps. <laughs> And I haven't had a chance to use it yet, so there. <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> that shit amuses the hell out of me. That peep emoji is the best. Okay. Um I dropped it a couple days ago, Boo. Uh, we're gonna do a whole podcast on spirit guides. We have one on um the guide, and yeah. then we have another one on spirit animals. So, why does that fill me with so much dread? <laughs> um, could you could you drop the question in the Ask a Question channel so we'll have it teed up for the the next time? I need to go clean that channel out for the questions we've answered so that uh, mm -hmm. I know that we know what actually still needs to be discussed in the future. I knew I should dread it. Mm -hmm. Whenever Boo Mom says she's going to write a fit for Queenie, we should all run and hide. As do not throw stones in glass crack houses. Okay. On that note, I think we're going to end the podcast because I I can't even I can't even. Um <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, where the fuck is Chad? Say goodnight, Julie. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs>